0: My name's Scott Redman, I'm an alcoholic. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God.
1: Grant me the serenity to accept the
0: things I cannot change, courage to change things I can,
1: and the wisdom to know the difference.
0: Uh, I want to thank uh, Chuck and Mike and Jeannie for putting this thing together and being kind enough to ask for me to participate. And uh, Can I see the hands of people in their first year of NAA? Wow! Wow! It's an honor to be with you, to hang out with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming here this morning and hanging out. This is just an incredible honor. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm i going to start the meeting the way my sponsor used to start meetings, which I felt was pretty annoying, so I wanted to pass <laughs> pass it on. I, uh, I uh, identified. I want you guys to get a chance to identify too. So on the uh, count of three, please say your name and the nature of your illness. One, two, three. So now you all know each other. And uh, uh, just to make it a little more annoying, could you stand up and try to hug somebody you don't know? If you can find someone you don't know. All right, break it up, break it up, get a room for God's
1: sake. I have a couple of favors to ask you this
0: morning. I, uh, um, I'm an alcoholic, my name is Scott Redmond, I, uh, I uh, want to ask you the favor of not taking anything I say personally today. I'm going to talk about the 12 steps. I'm going to to qualify a little bit. I'm going to talk about the history of the steps a bit, and then I'm going to go through my experience with the steps. I don't believe that I know how to work the steps for you. I absolutely don't believe that. I believe that any time that I've been up against entrenched power or know-it-all-ism in Alcoholics Anonymous in myself, I've suffered terribly. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, my hope is to get through the day without that. Um, I have a strong hunch about what's been good for me in AA and I'm going to share some of that stuff. But please don't take it as a personal indictment of what you're doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. Please don't. That's the favor I'm asking you today. And if you, you know, sometimes when I attend these kinds of events, my brain will say things like, "What are you insane? What are you? How, you can't take the third step that way. What are you nuts? How are you staying sober? You're probably not sober. What's wrong with you?" So, um, you might have those kinds of thoughts, but I, I, I uh, uh, don't judge me. Uh, evaluate me.
1: <laughs>
0: um. I'm in a I am gonna i i belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh I uh I was brought up in the Bronx in New York City. Uh I uh my family's very very troubled. Um, my wife never believed me about him until she met him. Uh I have uh, told these stories quite often. I'm going to start out with uh, with just telling you where I come from and how I landed in AA. I had a terrible journey here. It took me to 33 years to get here. Um and uh um, my wife never believed me about my family until she met him and my mom threw an engagement party for us my aunt rose wore her wig backwards and it had a bun on it um... i uh... i have an uncle who is a bad cop whose wife had a shoebox full of uh... um... evidence against him and every time he'd like get out of line she'd whip the shoebox out uh... and and <laughs> threatened to go to the NAP commission. I mean, if she bought a new, if she, he didn't compliment her dress, the evidence came out. So these are the kind of communication uh, skills that I was imbued with as a kid. Uh, if you got anything for free in my family, and then it was stolen, um, I, <laughs> I had an uncle who was uh, a welder, and he used to get free bales of steel wool. Like, here's your paycheck and your complimentary bale of steel wool. And, um, <laughs> his wife uh, took a decorating course and made throw pillows for the living room and filled all the throw pillows with the free steel wool. And uh, that, <laughs> that stuff works its way through on you after a while. So when you look at the room, everybody was moving a little bit. You know, the whole room was like a pulsing living thing. Um, I, uh, I did not have alcoholism when I came to AA. Uh, if you're new and you don't have alcoholism or if you're not sure if you have alcoholism I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous if you've been drinking at exactly the wrong time if you've been building up a bright outlook for yourself and your family and ripping it down around your ears in a senseless series of sprees if you get excited about dental surgery uh, if you protect your right to vomit um, you could have alcoholism if you don't what is wrong with you? I mean really, what, what's the alternative there? Um, but I did not have alcoholism when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, uh, I'm Jewish and Jews don't drink. Um, uh, <laughs> because it might dull the pain. And uh, you don't, you don't want to squander any agony opportunity. And the funny thing is, is uh, my, uh, my friend Gene is here today, who I know since my first 48 hours sober, and uh, our first home group, which we attended together, one of the guys there, one morning he said, uh, My name's La. I'm an alcoholic and... Uh, and an ex-Catholic, which means that I don't believe in God and I'm therefore positive God is going to come kill my ass for feeling that way. And I said, I'm going to go sit next to him, because that's exactly, exactly how I felt. But I did not have alcoholism when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, In addition to the Judaism, um, I had been in psychotherapy for 18 years. I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand it. And um, I'm not putting therapy down. I have absolutely no beef with psychotherapy. I've used therapy many times in sobriety and benefited from it tremendously. My colossal mistake is I was trying to treat my alcoholism with psychotherapy, which was a colossal blunder for me. If you have alcoholism, I love newcomer plans. They're just some of my favorite things in the whole world. I want to share this with you, because a guy raised the bar. This is now the best newcomer plan I've ever heard. Uh, a friend of mine in Nebraska sponsors a guy, was sober for about seven years, stopped doing the work, drifted away, got loaded, and got three DUIs in rapid succession. I don't even know how he stayed out of the can long enough to get three DUIs. That, that's a Promethean task in itself. So he, he gets a plan. The plan. He makes five Molotov cocktails. And his plan is to blow up the county courthouse. Because if he does, they'll lose his paperwork. (laughs) And he won't go to jail. Do people even have paperwork anymore? I mean, is there anything such as paperwork? So he takes... (laughs) Four, four Molotov cocktails and puts them at either end of the building. Now, I've never read the instructions on a Molotov cocktail, but I think there's throwing involved at some point. At some point, I think you got to throw. He takes the fifth Molotov cocktail, lays down in his car and falls asleep. Mission accomplished. So these days, I don't know, they're just so picky about blowing up government installations. They're just nutty about it. So this guy is not going to get 40 AA meetings. He's in a black bag in Guantanamo Bay. You know, he's like, never, we're never going to see this guy again. At any rate, (laughs) I had an uncle who was one of the top ten welterweights during the 1930s.
1: His
0: name was Izzy Redmond. And he had a fight in Atlanta, Georgia. It was about 1940, 1939. And he changed his name to Izzy Goldberg so no one would know he was Jewish. <laughs> I wish I was lying about this stuff. This is, this is, this is my genetic pool. These are my people. Uh, you, don't, you don't go to the bar and brag about this. You don't go to the bar and go, I'm a moron. I'm from a long line of morons. We're, we're complete idiots. Um... And there was chronic institutionalization and suicide attempts and uh, mental and physical abuse. And if you're new here, all I've got is good news for you because my family did not have one single solitary thing to do with making me an alcoholic. I'm not telling you that they didn't hurt me. I was gravely injured, and I'm not telling you that I didn't have to do a lot of stuff to get better from that. I'm telling you they didn't make me an alcoholic. Um, In my 18 years of psychotherapy, I did great work. I didn't receive the positive impact of a lot of that work until I stopped the, the, the not drinking thing. If you're new here, the not drinking thing's a moose. If it was not for the not drinking thing, we would be a much bigger organization. I guarantee it. <laughs> but it's that that not drinking thing screws a lot of people up. Our ranks would swell though if we didn't if we weren't so nutty about that. Um, at any rate, uh, and I, I went to therapy and, and I, uh, I was neurotic. Anybody here ever been called neurotic? Uh, uh, <laughs> those hands are, are up. Uh, and, and the
1: conventional
0: uh, definition of neurosis is you have anxiety, everybody has anxiety, and then you, uh, you try to come up with a better re- resolution for the anxiety because the neurosis is an unsatisfying resolution for anxiety your solutions are worse than your problems. All right. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody here, but you,
1: you
0: Molotov cocktails. That's all I can say. All right. <laughs> so I go to therapy and I uncover and discover. I uncover, I free associate, I shed some light on this, and I come up with a better resolution to the anxiety. I find out the cracks and the crevices, and in a conventional, in a normal person, one could do that. But you see, I have alcoholism. I have alcoholism. So I go to therapy and I go, look, I am I'm really anxious. Why? Well, I was so drunk uh, this afternoon, I was too drunk to walk, so I drove. Um, Well, what what are we going to do about that? I don't know. What can you do about that? I feel terrible. Why? Well, this afternoon, I sharpened a hypodermic needle on the back of a matchbook striker and sucked some heroin up through a fluffed-up cigarette filter and injected it. I I just feel terrible. Well, what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about that? Are we going to talk about that? Are we going to talk about what was I thinking just before I did that? How's this? Nothing. I was thinking about nothing. The room spun. My brain got too big for my skull. My nerves hang out out of my fingers. And I was fluffing up a cigarette filter. And if you ask me and you pursue me and I don't blow you off, odds are I have no more idea than you. How could he do it? You'd think he'd stay sober for her. The doctor told him if he got loaded again he'd be dead. There he is, boiled as an owl. What? What possesses these people? Odds are we have no more idea than you. Um, So there was a a lot of reasons why I wasn't an alcoholic and when I say that my family had nothing to do with making me an alcoholic is this... uh, I was injured psychologically with this bizarre mental twist that keeps allowing me to drink I keep talking myself into a drink that physically I can't stop taking. I can't moderate. I can't stop. I can't. I have no spigot. And if you're special and a drug addict, uh, try some controlled crack smoking. You know? Just uh, take a big mouthful of crack, smoke, and uh, blow it out. And say, I'm I'm not in the mood. And and we'll make you president. (laughs) You know, sometimes a drug addicts, it's hard to fu- uh, uh, tell if you're an alcoholic, but it ain't too hard to tell if you've got a problem. I'll tell you that, man. I had a friend named Max when I was a kid whose dream it was was to shoot dope to his was juggler veins. So uh, I came to his house and he had tied off his neck uh, and was garroting himself. And you know, when you move your hand around in a mirror, you, it really one way looks the other way and the
1: other...
0: Yeah, but he, he wasn't an alcoholic. And... Man, oh man. Um, so I grew up uh, in this insane family and I developed, because I have this bizarre thinking, um, and I, I have this weird physical reaction to alcohol, I developed this cancer of the soul, this spiritual tapeworm that ate me up from the inside and left me hollow and insane and alone. And it started when I was pretty young, because I was drinking real young. I got asked to leave a bunch of schools. and I, uh, In my neighborhood in the Bronx, I was wanted to get in with a bunch of young guys who were drinking and I would uh... applied to join their gang they were stealing cars and having demo derbies and drinking and uh... I, uh, they had a, they formed a circle around me. This guy, George, was bringing me into this group of guys, and he said, look, we just, just do Chevy Biscaynes and Fairlands. You knock out the fly window, you get in and on the column at that time, they had off on and lock. He said, if it's on lock, shine the car. If it's on off, take your house key, put it in the car, turn it on and drive away. And I said, uh, what if it's on on? He said, then someone's in the car, you moron. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I, w- I failed gang 101, um... <laughs> And then I went across the street and uh, where the hippies were, and there was no test, uh, no <laughs> no test for the hippies at all. Open enrollment, still open enrollment, as a matter of fact. And uh, I got right on board that program. Um, I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I overcame my alcohol problem with marijuana. I'd like to welcome all the pot smokers here. You re- you remember Wow, right? Wow. Wow. And right after Wow, usually came, what? <laughs> what?
1: Wow. What? What? Wow. What? Wow. What? Wow.
0: Wow. What? <laughs> watching a pot smoker is like watching a dog try to run on linoleum. There's there's like a lot of activity but no movement. Uh, they can't get a claw in the rug. I uh, conquered. <laughs> I conquered my marijuana problem with pills. I uh, was victorious over pills uh, with cocaine. Uh, cocaine is an excellent drug. It's particularly good for sex if you enjoy sex from the Neolithic period. I uh, over, overcame that gallstone cocaine uh, with heroin. Heroin's a very t- dark, complicated, artistic drug, and then you cross the line and become a, a vomiting pig. It's just a little hop, skip, and a jump. <laughs> but I had a lot of literature to back me up there. And then I drank till I didn't want to be a drunk. I was in my early 20s. I was uh, hitchhiking down from uh, Manhattan on the West Side Highway, and my aunt and uncle pulled up. My father had had a massive stroke. They put me in the car, and I was brought to the hospital that day. And uh, I couldn't show up for my old man the night that he died. Uh, I, I couldn't, couldn't do it. I couldn't answer the bell. I couldn't even go into the room and touch him on the cheek and give him a kiss and watch him take his light into another room because dead was dead. Dead was dead. And the ice around my heart had become so thick, I, was, I had painted myself into a corner. you know. And I felt like a pig, like an animal. Uh, a couple of times maybe a kid ought to be there for his old man. This was one of them and I couldn't answer the bell. And I had to do some really fast work. You know that moment in your brain, that alcoholic brain, when it's just like a dog dish left too long in the sun, you know, and a fly lands on it and gets vaporized, when any thought that lands on my head is radioactive, I'm radioactive, and I got to do something, I got to do something, and, and I turned the key that day. I knew what was wrong. It was heroin and needles, and all I had to do was never put a needle in my arm again, and I wouldn't be the guy who couldn't show up for his old man and that's that's how I dodged that in that moment and uh, I didn't I didn't put I didn't, I, didn't uh, put, I just drank till I didn't want to be a drunk and smoked dope till I didn't want to be a pothead and shortly after that I uh I, I had a really really interesting life I, I, I got to do uh, all the stuff I wanted to do I, I wanted to act and do all sorts of stuff I got to act in a Broadway play which for a kid growing up in the Bronx was a big dream big deal and I got to do it and uh and one day, uh, a new usherette with long brown hair walked into this theater. Uh, and I took one look at her. I did not even say hello to her or introduce myself. I went back into the dressing room and uh, announced to the male members of this cast that if anybody talks to the new usherette with long brown hair, I'll break all the bones in your hands and feet. And uh, so, anytime Nancy would like go near a guy, they kind of go and dash away. And um, we had a great time we had a great time I fell I fell in love with her before I ever talked to her and we celebrated 27 years of marriage uh, a couple of weeks ago we had to turn an 8 year suicide pact into a marriage but we uh, and we've been married I believe partly because we've never uh, wanted to get divorced at the same time Uh, I believe that that, that's been part of it and um, you know we had a great, we were living in New York. I was acting on Broadway. We are in our early 20s. Sometimes, one of the most misquoted lines in the big book of AA for me is I've heard people say that my worst day in here is better than my best day out there. No. <laughs> no. I had so many great times. Let's see. Pound of cocaine in an all-female jazz band or a candlelight at Chandler. Let's see. What do we want to do
1: What do I want to do? What do I want to do? Yikes!
0: Or candlelight at the wine garden. Um, What the big book says in chapter 3, the quote is, is the guy says, I wouldn't trade my worst day in here for my best day out there because I won't trade this way of life. Not because my, my day in here was better than my day out there. Because I won't live like a sucker anymore. I won't live like a sap. I won't settle for a nickel today when I could have a quarter tomorrow. You know, I won't do it. And this alcoholic thinking, which if you're new and which I'm going to talk a lot about today, because our problem mainly rests in our mind, would tell me that. And I still have that alcoholic thinking. I haven't had a drink since April 22, 1985. I still have it. If I don't do this work, it will prevail and it will control my entire life. A couple years ago, I was 14 years sober. I had to get uh, surgery on my hand. So I went to the doctor and he said, you know, uh, you're going to need general anesthetic. I said, "Oh, general anesthetic. Oh man, this is great. Normal people don't get excited about general anesthetic. There's no normal person that goes, "Oh god. But I know something about general anesthetic. I know that when they hit you with it, they say count backwards from 100 and you go 100, 99. I love 99." <laughs> I love 99, but the deal is is I won't trade 99 in for this way of life. I won't do it. But I did it as a drop of the hat before. That's why I would get excited about dental surgery. Normal people don't get excited about dental surgery, but you do, (laughs) some of you. So two months, three months ago, I, I needed surgery, the same operation on my other hand. I go to a different doctor. He says, you need the surgery. I said, well, I guess we'll be having that general anesthetic, won't we? And he looks at me and goes, you don't need general anesthetic with this. And I thought, no, I need another goddamn doctor is what I need right now. Talk about needing a second opinion.
1: I mean, it was amazing, sitting in that, house,
0: in that room going, I am disappointed about not having general anesthetic. That's insane. That's insane. But if I don't do this work, I, I will go find another doctor. You know, no question about it. And I'll think up some other surgery, too, while we're at it. Um, Nancy and I had a great time together. She started to become very, very troubled. Um from (laughs) from prolonged exposure to me and uh, we we became very sick um, because the strange mental twist would prevail I came home one day we had these 32 ounce iced tea tumblers in the house and I opened a, a bottle of wine I emptied the entire bottle of wine into one of these cups and I turned around my wife was looking at me like this she looked at me like this a lot and I said what and she said what are you doing and I looked at her right in the eye and I said I'm having a glass of wine. (laughs) Can't a man have a glass of wine in his own home? We became so sick that at one point a guy lent us his car and we sold his car. I will never forget this guy's voice on the phone as long as I live. He said, you sold my car? i got to tell you this story, cause it, was just, it was so great. I was about 10 years sober. I was talking at a meeting. My wife is there with her sponsor who has sponsored her the entire time she's been in LA for 10 years. I'm telling the story about the car and I look down and Ruby, my wife's sponsor, leaves across her and goes, you what? <laughs> and my wife points up at me and goes, Ew. <laughs> So, at any rate, <clears throat> um, one day, uh, Nancy came home and I had an idea to cook something, but I died in the middle of the idea. She came home, I was uh, asphyxiating, I had a pan of uncooked eggs in my hand. I was laying on the floor and the oven was on. And my wife nudged me, this is how ill we had become. She nudged me with her foot and she said, how are you? (laughs) And I looked up at her and I said, exhausted. (laughs) (coughs) And, um she called the doctor and the doctor couldn't even believe that she was calling him. I mean, she said there's a blue Jew on the floor of your uh, kitchen. What, there was an empty vial and a bottle. Why are you calling? Why aren't you calling paramedics? When my wife tells the story, I, gets a li- I get a little nervous at this point because <clears throat> she shares that she hung up the phone. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Thought, thought, thought. <laughs> Clean, clean, clean. So he's still cleaning, 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 cleaning. And then thought, why don't I call another doctor and get a second opinion? So she uh, called a family friend who screamed at her, get him to the hospital. And uh, We started out on Broadway and uh, eight years later, this is where we wound up. This is a good morning in the Redmond home. I had an accident. I was taken to the hospital. And they took my blood pressure, which is 160 over 110. And they said, you know, you're going to die. You, got to, you have high blood pressure. You have to lose some weight. And I said, you know what? I would like to. Uh, but I uh, drink alcohol and I smoke marijuana before I go to bed every night. So I'm not going to be able to. And, uh, and the doctor said to me, why don't I prescribe some medication for you? And I said, what a country. And um, he, <laughs> he prescribed chloral hydrate for me. Which is a Mickey. It's a knockout drop. It's a fast acting sedative. If you watch 30s films, when there's an unruly sailor in a bar, they put a little white powder in his drink, he drinks and falls back like a potted palm. That's chlorohydrate and I love these pills I love 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 my knockout drops so Nancy comes home I'm eating handfuls of knockout drops and slamming my arms into the wall to keep myself awake to enjoy my knockout drop because you don't want to waste a perfectly good knockout drop so I'm eating pills slamming body parts into the wall until I just seize, <laughs> keel over and now I'm, tr- I'm going to bed but I- and now I'm incontinent like the rest of the 33 year old men in America because I can't get up to go to the bathroom because I got so much Mickey in me so one night I woke up and wet the wall. And Nancy was excited the next day. He wet the wall. He's headed towards the bathroom. He didn't go in the bed. This is great. This is like a Wheaties morning, you know, for us. And she made me a big breakfast and stuff. The alcoholic life becomes the only normal one, you know. Uh, I think Depends could have kept me out there about five more years. I'm, I'm, I'm glad, glad they weren't around. <laughs> Our son Michael was born, and... Um, he was really welcomed into our community we were surrounded by friends and family we had a ton of phone calls and a lot of flowers and two years and nine months later when our son jesse was born there was nobody around no flowers no phone calls we had become completely isolated by the disease of alcoholism and um... jesse got sick he had uh, transitive tachypnea of the heart and went up to neonatal intensive care and the hospital called me that night and said you know what mr redmond your wife is all alone in her room There's nobody's calling, nobody's visiting, there's not a balloon in the room. She's suffering. Your child is sick. Where are you? And by that time also, I couldn't talk about my father. I I didn't have any pictures of him. I didn't like going to hospitals at all. The sound of a heart machine sounded like an indictment, personal indictment of, of the mistake that I had made. And even worse, I couldn't find anybody to watch my two-year-old kid. You know, so this doctor calls me and tells me, so I said, look, I, I can't, I'd love to come down. I can't find anybody to watch my two-year-old son. And it wasn't because no one loved us, it just hurt too much to be around us. We pressed ourselves on the people that loved us like a thumb upon a bruise. It just hurt too much. And um, this doctor who I had never met before said to me, you know what? Um, <laughs> my husband's home. I'll give you my phone number and my address. You can take your son to my house and uh, my husband will take care of him. And I said no. I had no way to accept this doctor's generosity. If you're new here, I don't think this is a rule, but I, it, it certainly is a lot of my experience. It's been, you're going to hear a lot of people talk about wanting to help you. It's been my experience that the more I've allowed myself to be sponsored and helped by people in AA, the more I've been willing to help other people. And I have gotten myself into a jam by turning people away when they've wanted to help me because then I don't owe anybody anybody, anything. And I couldn't accept this woman's generosity that night. Um, When my son Michael was five years old, he came to me and he asked me if there was anything such as God. uh, uh, A Christian family had moved in next to us and their kids talked about God a lot. And I looked into the eyes of my perfect five-year-old baby boy and I said no. I said, no son, there's not. And I swear to you, I thought I was saving him some skin. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was giving him the real existential deal, which every five-year-old is famished for. They just can't get enough (laughs) existential rhetoric to please themselves. And uh, I I lied to him. Uh, Worse than lying to him, I gave him terrible information. If you're new and you, uh, I want to urge you to read the big book of AA. If you can read it with some people who have read it already and seem to be working at not playing God but seeking God, my hat's off to you. I will tell you this. If you've been going to a lot of meetings and you're not familiar with the literature, the meetings might be very confusing for you. If you read the book, I will tell you right now, what started happening for me is I started going to meetings and going, and they just became a lot clearer to me. He's talking about AA. He's not talking about AA. I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, but I judge no man, because I'm too spiritually developed. <laughs> it's an evaluation. It's not a judgment. And um, we, uh, our family uh, became very, very ill, very, very sick. And uh, I... Uh, on April twenty second, nineteen eighty five, uh, after my wife and I just were tongue chewing babbling idiots and the boys by were three and six and by that time they were in terrible condition. They were uh, cut off from the society of other children. They were reading and writing years below their grade level. They were making involuntary clicking noises with their throat they couldn't stop making. They were playing war games that they couldn't stop playing. They couldn't stop pretending they were robots because it was safer to be made out of metal. And I didn't know that this was all alcoholism. It was actually all alcoholism. I know that because it cleared up when they recovered. It didn't go away, but it cleared up. I didn't know about the warped lives of blameless wives and children. I didn't know that fear, and it's described in our book, of shooting through the fabric of our life. I didn't know that my sons were so frightened that they couldn't even go to sleep. They'd stay up until they passed out. I didn't know that the fear was so disruptive that they couldn't concentrate on small motor stuff because they were disrupted all the time they were interrupted all the time they were looking over their shoulder you know and uh... I didn't know it and it's an incredible thing if you take a look at the second and third chapters of our book there's lists about what we say about ourselves and what other people say about us you think you get sober for her the doctor said why can't you lay off the hard stuff Right. I'll stop after the sixth drink. And my personal favorite, what's the use anyhow? It's just always been one I'm, I'm, I like. And in our home, our children and the children of so many other, in so many other active alcoholic homes, and I, I've seen the template of this behavior over and over again, tend to become pointlessly aggressive en route to a goal that never gets achieved because the rug gets pulled out from under you Whenever. Right, because no one's going to get in between me and the drink. Nobody. If you get in between me and the drink, if you're my wife, my lover, my buddy, my bride, my dreams, my career, my children, you will vanish. You will either vanish or you'll become something less than human. You'll become paper mache or you'll disappear. And how much disappearing can a baby bear until they buy it, till they believe it? And that's the terrible shattered condition that, that my family was in when I came to AA. And if I had realized it all, right away, I would have looked like an outtake from scanners. I used to say to my wife, I can't fit the pain in my head. I can't. And thank God, I, didn't, I wasn't hanging out with anybody in AA who said that I had to. All they said was, one miracle at a time, show up with us. And some people, particularly Gene, made fun of me. Um, in a wonderful, loving way. Uh, on April 22nd, 1985, I crossed the line I swore I would never cross again. I put a needle in my arm. My careers were gone by that time. The kids were uh, shattered, as I just described to you. And Nancy and I were dying. And, uh, and I crossed the line I swore I would never cross. I put a needle in my arm again. Now, why didn't I make it okay to put needles in my arm? I could have done that. Right. One of my other—I have a friend named Larry, who, when he first read our book, he read the fourth chapter. The first page of the fourth chapter of the book has a sentence which, paraphrased, says, "Facing an alcoholic death or a spiritual life is not always an easy decision to make. Very tough. Die in a pool of my own urine? Spiritual life? What? What am I going to do?" Um, and the first time that he ever read that sentence, he said to himself, "Well, how bad an alcoholic death are we talking about here?" <laughs> that's not a normal thought no normal person would think that I was sponsoring this guy for about fifteen minutes and uh... he lived with his wife he had a gay lover and he was a male prostitute and uh... he called me to tell me that he drank and I said oh why? <laughs> and without a beat he said I caught my wife cheating on me now, I, now I completely understand that unfortunately I understand how you can cut and paste reality, you can turn the whole world you gotta turn the whole world the whole world okay so it just slides in slot by slot okay I know I live with my wife I know I've got a gay lover I know I'm a hooker with a beeper but the bitch cheated on me I'm out here that's the equation Why didn't I make it okay to shoot dope? I crossed the line. So what? So what? I crossed the line. Here's your line. I'll give you a line. (laughs) I don't know. It's absolute mystery. It's the first mystery that I experienced in Alcoholics Anonymous. God is absolute and complete mystery. No one can fully comprehend or define that power which is God. And I've made a lot of mistakes. Because this spiritual experience has happened to me in those places with those people, I have misidentified those people in that place for being the source of that mystery. And they're not. And any time I've, mis- I've I misidentified them as that,
1: I've suffered. I've suffered.
0: It's been bad. It's complete and utter mystery. And uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, not somebody a lot of Jews quote, uh, uh, (laughs) the prince of theologians says in his main tract uh, on on, uh, theology that that to know God is to know that one does not know him, that God is absolute and complete mystery. That's why when people say, AA is, I always go, for you, for you. So, um, I don't know why I didn't make it okay to shoot dope. I called my therapist of record in my 18th year of psychotherapy, my first Jungian therapist. I told him what I had done, and he said to me that morning the exact same thing that Carl Jung told the man who 12-stepped the man who 12-stepped Bill Wilson, the exact same thing. I didn't know it. I hadn't read our literature. But once I read our literature, it made me feel really good. Um, Jung said to this guy named Roland Hazard, who uh, Jung uh, psychoanalyzed the guy, they go on great I feel great, I'll have a drink. And he went out and got loaded, he went back to Jung and he said, I don't what can I do? And Jung said to him the exact same thing this guy said to me. He said, All I can tell you is we either have to institutionalize you or it, now this is the thing Jung did not say, or attend a meeting of AA or NA. You know. Uh why I went to the AA meeting, I absolutely could not tell you. Absolutely. It's an absolute mystery to me. I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, I got my best clothes on, got a bad check to write you, and I went to Unit A when it was next to the lovely Tonga Hut. If Satan does live on Earth, I believe it's in the form of Tahitian-themed bars.
1: It's those big heads.
0: And I walked into Unit A and I took one look around and I said to myself, Oh my God, oh my God, how lame is this? This is beyond lame. This is beyond church, beyond synagogue. This is some plateau of lameness I never even imagined was available to (laughs) me." And the room looked like it was the product of 200 years of inbreeding. I mean, it was just unbelievable. They were like, they were like identical twins carving their initials on each other's feet in the back of the room. And, and, uh, uh, <laughs> and everything was a miracle. I'm a miracle. You're a miracle. <laughs> the furniture and coffee are miracles, too. And I'm waiting for the Jew hunt to start. I know that's going to break out any minute, right? Come on, Jaime, strap these antlers on. (laughs) Always wanted to run a big buck Jew. Snock his beanie off. When he bends down to pick it up, we'll push him over. It'll be fun. I could do this all day. Then the unsolicited AA information guy comes up at the end of the meeting. You know him. He's got one tooth with a cavity in it. You remember that guy. He's wearing a belt buckle large enough to serve an entire fish on. Do I want what you've got? No. No, but thanks for spitting on me. I really appreciate it. Thanks Clem. Say hello to Martha. Do I bring my own bib overalls next week? Am I issued a pair? When do we hook a rug? I know the arts and crafts is going to start. I was horrified horrified so I went back there every morning for a year
1: <laughs> and
0: I met the first people who gave me Alcoholics Anonymous who I had my first fellowship with not friendship I try not to have friendship with anybody anymore I like fellowship I'm atta- I have attachments with friends I need them to do stuff my friend Jean and I who I love we never call each other. And we're just nuts about each other. We are every time we see each other we go, I I love you, I'm not gonna call you. <laughs> we truly have fellowship. We don't have an attachment. We don't we don't try to make each other do stuff. It's really remarkable. And it began in that room for me. Jean would come to our house. We, like, lived on Tobacco Road. I mean, we could have lived in a mansion, but the interior of our house, it was a filthy, grimy, alcoholic wreck. And she would come and sit with her, drink out of our dirty cups, and make a little space for herself in the garbage and, and talk to us. You know, and, and, uh, and nobody else was doing that at the time. The first day that I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, I went home and a guy called me. He didn't wait for me to call him. He called me and that's what I needed in that situation. So I started going to AA. I I stuck around Alcoholics Anonymous for six months and uh, enjoyed the gift of step none. I, uh, I wasn't doing any step work yet. I was getting real busy. Uh, first guy who gave me AA, he gave me my first commitment, John, had me go to central office once a month and watch him answer the phones. <laughs> and by the time I was a year, I was ready to rock. You know, he would take me down a skid row um, on his panels and say, you know, don't, you don't need to say anything, but here we are. And, uh, six months i took my first uh, full-time commitment At uh, six months i became a secretary of the sunday morning seven a.m. meeting and i got involved in alcoholics anonymous i wasn't doing any step work at that time my wife reached out to the al-anon family groups uh, when i was thirty seven days sober i know that because she raised her hand and said my name's nancy my husband's thirty seven days sober which made a lot of old-timers want to talk to her right away uh... it was the last time i've come up at an al-anon meeting i believe and um... I want to share something with you because it really impacted me when I was new. Uh, I would go to certain Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and I'd hear people tell jokes about Al-Anon. I'm not talking about good nature jokes. I'm talking about hurtful, mean jokes. And when I was new, it really had a, a, a really bad effect on me. I would sit in my seat and I'd go, isn't this good? I mean, isn't this what we're supposed to be doing, is involving, getting involved in a family recovery? And of course it is. Until I stuck around long enough to find out that the people were, who were doing that had no functioning knowledge of the work being done in Al-Anon. We're just mean and ignorant people, although I judge no man. Um, I I was very hurt by it and very confused by it. So, you know what, if if you're doing that on a public level, your vote is that it's okay to do it. I I used to have all the votes. I've been uh, been whittled down to one vote by good sponsorship, and my vote is that it's not okay to do it. There there might be some people, you know, some new people who are just starting out on this journey who I think we should be encouraging. And, And I'll give you one other thing, throw one other thing on the table. Imagine going to a meeting or a place where people were telling jokes about Alcoholics Anonymous I'm not talking about the jokes we tell about us we tell plenty of jokes about alcoholics I'm talking about jokes about a, a misguided ignorant jokes my heart would fall out of me I wouldn't even know, I, I know what I'd be thinking I'd be thinking, you don't know you don't get it you don't, you, you've never been there where a man or a woman starts a fire where you see them push their way back from a table and go oh my god oh my god you don't know. If you knew, you couldn't possibly be saying this. You couldn't possibly be ridiculing them. And if we do that with our, our, our sister fellowship, I just think... I just think about it. Think about it. Or don't. Um, and Nancy reached out to the Allenon family groups and we really started making a beginning with our family. And um, I, uh, The boys were a wreck and Nancy and I... You told Nancy and I to not get involved in our first year. And we didn't. We stayed the hell away from each other. Um, uh, I I can give you the Scott Redman uh, couples workshop right now. Just take me about 10 seconds. Talk to her until she changes her mind. Just talk to her until her eyes roll back in her head. And she keels over and on the way over she goes, Oh, okay. That's what I'm bringing, that's what I'm bringing. I don't know how to fight, don't know how to fight in the relationship, I either scream until she shuts up or I cry until she shuts up. Either one's fine. I like the tyranny of helplessness. And I loom, I'm a loomer, I'm big. I like to loom with a light behind me so I get her in a shadow. You know, like it's totally eclipse of the Jew if I get her right in there, right? (laughs) And if I... (laughs) If I can work like a loom, a scream, and a cry into one fight, that's a hat trick. It doesn't get a whole lot better than
1: that.
0: I don't even know how to clean my house. I don't know how to act like a grown man. I don't have, I'm, I've become uncivilized from alcoholism. I, uh, I've stood next to guys ten years younger than me my whole life and said, I wonder what it's like to be grown up. What a crappy way to live, you know. And I didn't know what was, I didn't know, and you guys kept telling me that if I can clean house and begin to take some seemingly disconnected actions, this is a war of attrition. I'm going to surround the disease and I'm going to starve it out. But it's going to happen in the main through actions that don't seem to be directly applicable to what's going on. The thing I forgot, and I forget to this day, is my disease acts very poorly to a frontal assault. It just does. Whenever an alcoholic tells me I'm working on myself, I always want to go, Step away from yourself. (laughs) Step away from yourself. (laughs) I have to die of self, but I can't kill self. I can't lose something on purpose. I can't tickle myself, I can't kill self, and yet I have to die of self, so what's going to happen? I'm going to have to learn some stuff, I'm going to have to find out some stuff, I'm going to have to follow some people. And that's what I, I, I started to do, I to start cleaning the house. See, I don't want to clean the house, I don't know how to clean the house. I think that a certain amount of housework should equal a certain amount of sex. I think that, like, uh, there should be, like, conversion tables on the back of cleaning products of housework to sex. And I didn't know that I was going to have to start cleaning the house for God. Boy, I wish he had told me that my first day, right? If this works out, you'll clean the house for God.
1: <laughs>
0: and, um, I, uh, I knew I was going to drink. I've seen the AA drill hundreds of times in the six months I've been here. People came in and did the work and changed. People came in, didn't do the work, didn't change, got sick, got sicker, got to the podium, shared their gift with us, and shared their ass right out of the door, or uh, stayed here and became columns of human sewage and sexual predators, although I judge no men. Uh, that's the third time I've said that. I, I guess it's true at this point. And, um, I knew I was going to drink, and my wife says that she saw it in me, and I, I, I really felt that I saw it in her. I saw the touch of the Master's hand in her. I really did, you know, and uh, so I asked the guy to sponsor me, he's a good guy, still is a good guy, great guy, and he made sure I'd done some reading from the big book of AA, and uh, he invited me over to his house, and he read chapter 5 to me, and on the way through he took me through the first two steps. We reached step 3 and got on our knees and said a prayer, which I felt was unnecessary and embarrassing, but I did it anyway. And then he went back and he gave me instructions on how to do a fourth step from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he changed my life then and there forever. We wanted to do three resentments. One of the resentments was against myself. The book says when it was remorse, it was resentment against myself. I'm sure you don't have any resentments against yourself, so you're not, you're not bothered by that. Um, I am. And, um, I had a resentment against Nazis for slaughtering Jews during World War II. I'm resentful at Nazis for slaughtering Jews during World War II. It affects my self-esteem pocketbook, Ambition, Personal Relations and Sex. A five-bagger for sure. What's my part? Let's try nothing. But the book doesn't ask me what my part is. But people use that phrase and I understand it. It was very important in this particular situation that I didn't ask that question. My sponsor said, okay, you didn't have any part. What are your defects? Talks about defects here. What are the defects in you that if God would remove, the resentment would be gone? I said, the only one I can possibly come up with is that I'm a coward because I'm too scared to confront these people and kill them. That's the only thing that I can possibly come up with. And he said, you don't get it. I said, what? He said, look at the question they're asking. They're not asking you if the event is your fault. They're asking you if the resentment is your fault. They're asking you if you're willing to take responsibility for the resentment. Because you see, I don't hate things. I don't just hate things. I hate things in a way that when my head hits the pillow, it becomes a rotisserie. I hate things so that when I wake up I water my hatred and care for it like a little flower. I want to make sure it's developing, that it's okay, that it's not disrupted. The worst thing is when I forget to hate something. You know when a guy guy goes hi and I go hi, oh I hate him, why did I do that? Then you have to redouble your hatred time. You have to like double, you really have to come a lot more snubbing and glowering, you know. I re-experience this stuff in a way that uh, eats my brain and my heart and turns my life black and throws me out of my own life. Resentment's no big deal. It's just the source of all spiritual disease, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. It will cut you out from the sunlight of the spirit, drag your ass out and kill you dead. But don't be alarmed. No biggie. Work a step a year. (laughs) Boy, we used to hear that pearl a lot. I I haven't heard that in a long time. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven. Driven isn't nudged or influenced. Driven implies under the lash of, in slavery too, like I just described. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows. They retaliate, seemingly without provocation, but uh, we find that invariably. Invariably means without variation, every time, with no exception. Invariably find that at some time in the past I've made decisions based on self, which later placed me in a position to be hurt. Bullshit! What did I do with the Nazis? Nothing. And I've been scared of them my whole life. And I got beaten up as a kid by gangs in the Bronx because I was Jewish. So bullshit. And he again said, look at what they're asking. And he asked me, is the event your fault? I said, no. He said, is the resentment your fault? Every time, without exception, without loophole. If I was a reasonable person and didn't re-experience this hatred in a way that was so disruptive that it ended my life and kept me in the cycle of spree and remorse until I was traded out and dead, what would a reasonable person do? They would feel bad. They would might uh, join political parties and take a reasonable course of action to combat this kind of activity. They might take some of their dope dollars, which is what I call my money, and uh, uh, contribute to... uh, to organizations they might actually take some positive action and be in their life but i don't do that i didn't do that i do that today but i didn't do it then what are the defects in me that if god would remove the resentment would be gone the opposite of resentment is not always peace and love and happiness the opposite of resentment sometimes is the absence of murder and i am not a suicide guy i'm a homicide guy i vastly prefer your death to mine i always have you go first I am not knocking the suicide people. This is not an indictment of the suicide people. I'm just a homicide guy. I think that it's the flip side of the same coin, really. I've always had this, <laughs> this uh, headline in my head, Scott Redmond kills wife, kills children, and refuses to commit suicide. But, uh,
1: <laughs> not going to do it.
0: <laughs> what is it in me that if God were to remove the resentment against Nazis, it would be gone? I'm a grudge holder. I'm not living in today. I'm playing God. I'm judgmental. I'm a hypocrite because I hear German accents and I don't even want to know the person. I'm a racist. I'm an opportunist because I've leveraged this. And self-pity. Self-pity. If you could bottle self-pity, it would not crack off the market in a week. It's just better. (laughs) You know, when I get filled with it, my eyes get teary, and I get a lump in my throat, and I come forward, it's like good dope, you know. That's (laughs) self-pity. And he turned my life on that dime in that moment. He gave me the key to freedom that day you know the resentment was my fault every time with no exception and if I could get this power greater than myself involved in it I could I could actually be free of this and, and the event is my fault sometimes it absolutely was I was resentful with my aunt Jean for uh, pinning my arms against my sides when I was a little boy so I could get hit was the event my fault from my point of view absolutely not I think mean, it's a miserable thing to do to a little kid some people might not feel that way but I did was the resentment of my fault? The next 25 years of creating havoc in her life and misery, I'm going to take that bullet. <clears throat> at any rate, my sponsor gave me these tools. I took three months. I wrote my inventory. I went back to him. I read my fifth step at nine months of sobriety, and uh, I uh, didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know what to do about Nancy and the boys and my pop, and my sponsor refused to tell me how to make amends. He said, why don't you do your job in Alcoholics Anonymous, and let's see what happens. Why don't you address your inventory as your spiritual task, and let's see what happens. Now, I don't know if he did that with all the guys he sponsored, but he did it with me. And I'm really fortunate that he did. He could have given me his idea of the tasks that I needed to do. But, well, by the way, the stuff that's real clear, like pay back the money, <laughs> that's not the stuff I'm talking about. That's, I, and I really tried to find some other thing. <laughs> that you could do there. But pay back the money is pay back the money, you know. Uh, when I called the guy to tell him I was, uh, was paying him back for selling the car that I had borrowed, um, his voice was exactly the same on the phone. He said, You're paying me back? It's like he was frozen on the phone for about 16 years. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know what to do about my wife, my kids, um, my dad... And uh, and my brother and uh, and my sponsor refused to tell me what to do. He said, "Do your job in Alcoholics Anonymous and see what happens." So I started doing my job in AA, and I started having to do some really lame stuff. Lame, 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 lame. Um, I had to start taking some dope dollars and spend it on buying my kid a pair of jeans and a, and a and a lunchbox, and I mean, we're talking about really elementary stuff. I'm not talking about a lot of dough, you know. I started going to home group. My first, uh, my home group after the unit A morning meeting was the North Hollywood group, Men's stag, and I let the guys get to know me and got a commitment and, and got going with those guys. And, and then I had to do some stuff that was horribly embarrassing and difficult. I had to go into my children's school and sit down with the teachers and say to them, my kids have been having difficulty, not because they're willful. Because they, they were so smart and were so low-functioning that the teachers would say to me, I just want to grab them and shake them, you know. And I'd say to this teacher, they've been shook.
1: <laughs>
0: they're, they're all shook. We, and I had to go in and sit down with these people and do something that was embarrassing and scary, and I did not want to do it, which was to sit down with them and go, my children have been very ill and are ill because I've been very sick. Can you help us? We're making a beginning. Can you help us? Every single time the answer was yes. There wasn't even any question about it, it wasn't even an issue. Of course, that's what we're here for. Let's test the boys, let's see what kind of of resources we have for them. They tested, they needed help. And um, special ed, the special ed teacher said, get them into sports, get them into music, let's see if the big motor stuff will impact the small motor stuff. And they were absolutely right. So spent a couple of booze bucks, Buying my kid a baseball mitt, showing up, getting him into the Little League. Very elementary. We, again, had become uncivilized. We didn't know it because we were so sophisticated. We didn't know that our
1: sophistication had made us uncivilized.
0: Bizarre. And uh, Jesse wanted to play the drums, so I, went to, I didn't have any dough. Uh, I went to the music store and bought him a drum pad, which is a piece of wood, two sticks, and a rubber pad. I did the right thing. My son asked me for this thing, and I got. and it wasn't drums, but I got it for something. I went back to my home group and I told the guys, and if you have a home group that you love, and that is a satisfying and soothing experience for you, because I've had home groups where I've just every week was, I had to do so much 10-step work so that my brain didn't blow up. that's a lot of fun but uh, I I would go back to the group and tell the guys what I had done and not because I was bragging it was because they wanted to know me and my friend Peter's here today he and I had been rooting for each other for 18 years we've been tracking each other's family when we see each other we go to each other hungry because we've been touching base my friend Sandy my friend Gene I, I have so many people around me who I have those kinds of relationships in Alcoholics Anonymous you know and you know, unfortunately, in the world out there, in the professional world, a lot of times I run into professional, and we're just asking each other questions to see who's better and how you've screwed up, and maybe I can be a little bigger by standing on your shoulders. And it just doesn't, it, it, it you know. At any rate, um, I went and I told the guys, and uh, they were interested in my family. And within a month, uh, the AA drum set showed up at our house. There were a lot of burnout drummers in our group at that time. <laughs> and uh... guys are showing up with these mega death drums and uh... Dude, and uh, Je- uh... Jesse would sit behind this drum set and he'd disappear, you couldn't even see him, he was just tiny and um, a couple of years ago my sons played the house of blues uh, on, on Sunset Strip and they burnt the dump down burn it down played at this packed house, eight, nine hundred kids, elbow to elbow, playing hip hop music and over to the side was this uh group of middle aged weeping alcoholics
1: <laughs>
0: well, there's another one of them here today and uh, I think the kids are kind of looking and going what is with those crying old people what, what's that all about what <laughs> is their Al-Anon and AA aunts and uncles that have been following them around for 18 years I uh... uh, I, uh I've had a lot of problems in sobriety a lot of problems I've had problems, fiscal problems, I've had mental problems, I've had problems in my career, and I've used the 12 steps and the other things that the 12 steps have taken me to. My 11th step has taken me to all sorts of other spiritual pursuits and all of this stuff. I know what people are saying when they say the road gets narrower. I understand that. I just don't subscribe to it. No, we're in the big book of A.A. Does it say the road gets narrower? It says, join us on the firing line of life. Help us to pack things into the mainstream of life. Join us on the broad highway. Become part of the big idea, the great reality. It talks about life getting bigger and bigger and bigger. More inclusive, not exclusive. And that's what I want. I want a, the big, sexy, whole thing. There's a shock. I want the whole thing. And I'm getting it. I'm getting it despite some real problems. I know some people in sobriety don't have problems. I would like to kiss the hem of their robe when they get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I have benefited from is watching people in Alcoholics Anonymous go through pretty severe problems. And uh, I, can, I, I, I can think I can say all hyperbole aside that I've seen people in AA go through everything. Pretty much go through everything. you know. Um, we got nailed in the Northridge earthquake, really bad. we were like real right near the epicenter. A guy died near us. I got a, uh, a physical injury and, and uh, chronic back thing. And, uh, it, it was really bad. And um, shortly after the quake, I w- was up at a uh, uh, AA function in Canada, and this woman up who used to live in LA. She was an LA expatriate. She walked up to me at this function and she said, Oh, I'm so glad that God got us out of LA before the quake. And I said to her, Oh, so he likes you. He likes you. But we're crap. But he likes you. That's so great. And she said to me, I guess he just felt you had some lessons to learn. I'm out of here, man. I'm out of here. I can't stay sober in that world for ten seconds. If I have a God up there saying, get him, get him, get the Redmond boy, get him. No evacuation plan for you, Jew boy, get him. Get him, turn his wife to salt, kill his goat, put a finger in his eye, get him. Smote him, smote his ass. Smote anybody he talks to. (laughs) I can't live in that world. I, uh... I know that God's keeping her sober. It wouldn't keep me sober for 15 seconds. If I saw the deliberate hand of God in the suffering of people, I I don't want to be alive in that world. I'm also crossing the line. I am ascribing a meaning or a purpose to God's intention and will and presence. And I'm losing the big idea of AA, which is that God is absolute and complete mystery. I'm going to accept this mystery, and now I'm going to engage in a program of action to encourage the mystery, to recreate it, to be, to participate in it, and to celebrate it. You know. And that's why Alcoholics Anonymous, the whole fiber, the whole bead, the whole fabric of Alcoholics Anonymous mirrors that. If you take a look in our pamphlet uh, about GSO, not often opened, uh, there's, a, a, uh, there's a, a corporate diagram in there. Unlike any corporate diagram you will, I, I've ever seen in my life, it's an upside-down triangle with the Board of Trustees on the very lowest point. You can't get lower in AA than trustee and the top rung is the rank and file member of Alcoholics Anonymous and we don't need any other rules because as Bill would say they have alcoholism they don't need rules (laughs) alcoholism will take care of everything and the first board, the first foundation didn't believe him they'd say you're insane, you can't do this you gotta throw a rope around this thing and Bill would go these are people in a lifeboat, you don't get it you're not alcoholics, you don't get it and he was absolutely right Absolutely right. Um, my God expects me to do my job in Alcoholics Anonymous if it's to show a guy how to stay sober through uh, being a caterer or directing TV shows in Universal. My God expects me to do my job in AA if it's to show a guy how to be happily married or how to go through a divorce. Sober. I don't have a God up there saying, you know what, let's key your car today. It'll, it boils for you, and I, you're, you're due for a rash. Uh, I, I, I,
1: can't,
0: I, I can't possibly uh, live in that world. And if you're new here, I, I ask you to do what I asked you to do at the beginning of this session, which is to not take this for you. You know, I have ideas that are not going to work for you. Look, you're going to hear stuff about alcoholism now that you're in AA. You're going to hear stuff. Uh, I've heard stuff in AA that has made me nuts since I've come in here. And none of the stuff I've heard about alcoholism have I ever found in the Big Book. Ever. I've heard that alcoholics don't like change. I just don't like change I don't like. You know, but I'm I'm nuts about change I like. I seem to have an unending appetite for it. But But change I don't like. Alcoholics, I'm an alcoholic, I don't like change. I just hit the lottery. I'm having sex with twins. This change is killing me. No, you don't hear that a lot. You know, you just don't hear that a lot. <laughs> I've heard that alcoholics are perfectionists. I'm a pig. I'm a pig. I have one area of perfectionism. I get very perfectionistic around my wife when she's caring for me. I seem to have this explosion of perfectionism just at that t- that time. But my favorite is that alcoholics are above average intelligence. Um, I have only heard this at AA meetings. I have never heard it anyplace else. I have never heard it at an Al-Anon meeting. Ever. Ever. <laughs> So what we're going to do today is uh, about every hour and 15 minutes, we're going to take a seven-minute break because I believe that's how long it takes to smoke a cigarette. And um, so one thing I would ask you is to do what you need to do and get back in as quick as you can so we can kind of keep this thing going. Um, And when we come back, we're going to start with a a history of the steps and overview and work our way through as much of the material as we can by the time we end. Thanks so much, everybody.
1: My name is Scott. I'm an alcoholic. Please join me in the Serenity
0: Prayer. God. I want you to do another prayer with me, uh, and this is going to be something we're going to be talking about later on, but I'd like you to say it with me now. For all those who care to, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father.
1: I think and one I will
0: Um, if you just said the Lord's Prayer with us, uh, you said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I'm going to call you to task for that later on. Um... If you're not familiar with uh, the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're new here, I want to urge you to read some of the material. I am now, in the course of, of our sessions today, I'm going to be talking about some non-AA, approved, not, non, non-AA Council approved literature. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I've been asked to give the workshop, and this is a part of my experience. My favorite uh, um, history of Alcoholics Anonymous actually is, not, is non-conference approved literature. It's a book called Not God. By Ernest Kurtz, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful book. It was written by a guy who came to AA to do a, a, a thesis on AA and wound up joining. And uh, it's got some pretty remarkable stuff in it. And I, I, I'm not. Uh, it, it's uh, published by hazelton and I I have just it's really enriched my sobriety tremendously one of the things it talks about uh... there's a uh, uh, if you've if you never had passed it on i want to urge you to re, re- pass it on um, anytime time wh- when I, I came in one of the confusing things to me about when i first came into AA, at the time there were some old timers uh, that would kind of say you're an idiot shut up you're a moron don't say anything and i'd go Jeez, feels just like home I-, I don't know why i left the house And w- there was this sort of uh, uh, deal about some of these guys that they were very wise, they knew what they were talking about and some of them were just mean, um, they weren't wise, uh, they were just really pissed off and mean and part of the frozen chosen, although I judge no man. And then there were other uh, old timers who were working with newcomers, writing inventory and they were seekers and those were the people who I gravitated to and whom I've continued to gravitate to. Um, And uh, if you read some of the literature of AA, some of the history, it really has helped me become a a, a comfortable member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Anytime anybody says AA, this is the way it is, this is the way it should have been, this is the way it was, um, and it's written in stone, I know that they haven't examined the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous was founded by wackos. Uh, uh, Bill, Bill dropped a lot of acid. He, he thought that niacin could save everybody. They had to ask him to stop stop selling niacin out of central office. Um, they were playing with Ouija boards. They were going talking to mystics. These guys were nuts, and they were seekers and Thank God if they hadn 't have been seekers i don 't know what we would have wound up with. One of the precursors of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a very instructional group was called the Washingtonians. Uh, uh, No one really knows about the Washingtonians, because really all they are is a cautionary tale. They were huge. To duplicate the amount of people who belonged to the Washingtonians, which which was a, a group originally dedicated to the cause of sobriety, and then got involved in politics, and no longer exist. Um, to duplicate, right now, we're, about, we're over 2 million people worldwide in Alcoholics Anonymous. We would, to duplicate the Washingtonians, we would need 10 million members of AA just in the United States. That's how huge they were. Abraham Lincoln spoke at one of their commencements. They are now gone, a cautionary tale. They had a, uh, uh, we have the grapevine. They had their published organ, and their published organ started getting used to publicize, uh, to take sides on, on uh, political issues and social issues, and they're gone. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous was given birth to by uh, uh, an organization called, uh, it came to be known as Moral Rearmament and the Oxford Group. And it was a first century uh, Christian organization um, that was uh, non-denominational, uh, and Bill Wilson, when, uh, when he got 12-step by his friend, who was 12-step by the man who Carl Jung told that there was no hope for, uh, Bill uh, joined the Oxford group, they had something at the Oxford group called, that they used to nickname the the alcoholic squad which was a bunch of drunks trying to get sober in the Oxford group and some of them did and uh, the Oxford group, in much the same way that the Washingtonians did, got involved in politics and personalities um, at one point their leader went to uh, sort of evangelize Hitler which probably wasn't a great idea just in terms of PR um, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, Bill Wilson met Bob Smith in in the Oxford group. The Oxford group uh developed these two groups of alcoholics, one in New York and and one in Akron, Ohio. The one in Akron, Ohio stayed affiliated with uh, the Oxford group uh, longer than the one in New York did. And they had sort of two kind of schools. You know, the New York one was a little loony, a lot of intellectuals, artists, deranged people, my folk, uh, people uh, examining the beginnings of psychotherapy. In in the Midwest you had a more of a a first-century fundamental Christian group, although you certainly had that in New York too. And they put together something That was not codified. If you look at the history, they didn't have a six-step program, but they had six basic things that they'd move people through. Bill started writing the big book as a fundraising tool. He kept trying to raise money, and if you, ever, if you ever get a chance, there's a great tape of Bill Wilson talking about the writing of the big book, and he starts it by saying, I hear people have it in a shrine, let me tell you what happened. They were writing chapters and saying, will you give us money now, and they go, no, we actually won't. I sponsored this guy for a while, he was in Senegal, and uh, I'm driving him one day, and um, he, he couldn't stop drinking. And uh, he said, I can't, he had a heavy Senegalese action, he said, I can't stop getting baptized. I said, what? He said, well, I asked the church people for money, and they say, no, come with us, and they dip me. And uh, after they dip me, I said, can I have the money, and they go, no. <laughs> Now, he's a Muslim. They frown on chronic baptism in, in uh, the Muslims. And it's the only time I've ever gotten a chance to say this to somebody. I want to say to them, you know, if you get stop drinking, you will never have to get baptized again. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> and Bill basically would say, here's a chapter, will you... Can we have some dough? Nobody would fund him. You know, he got a little stipend from the Rockefeller people. And slowly the book started getting put together as a fundraising tool, as PR, and ultimately they certainly did, in Bill's grandiose thoughts, wanted to go out, you know, to the world with Alcoholics Anonymous. I love Bill Wilson. He's my kind of megalomaniac. I, I adore him. Um, and um, one of my favorite Bill Wilson stories uh, when I, I don't know, some of you knew, might have not have seen. There was a film made about the founding of AA called "My Name Is Bill W." It's, it's really quite—I I thought it was a terrific movie. And uh, the guy who wrote the screenplay spent a lot of time with as many people who were still around who were part of the founding experience. And he spent a lot of time with Lois Wilson. Bill was offered the cover of Time magazine, and he turned it down. And the writer found out about this and said to Lois, "Wow, what an incredibly humble thing to do." And Lois said. Oh oh really? You really think it was humble, huh? And the guy said, "Yeah." And she said, "How many people have been on the cover of Time?" And the guy said, "Well, thousands." She said, "Right. How many people have turned it down?" One. And he told the story as often as he could.
1: <laughs>
0: I just I just love it. It's like his unmarked grave. Isn't that cute? It's the most visited unmarked grave in the world. You know, it just says Bill Wilson, huh? <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, um, Bill went off by himself. He, they, they wrote, there was a solution. They got the stuff from uh, um, Silkworth for the doctor's opinion. And I love it. If you ever get a chance to look at an early pressing of the big book, Silkworth did not sign his story in the first printing. I think it was the first couple of printings. He hedged his bet. It says, Dr. Anonymous. <laughs> In the book, it doesn't say Dr. Silkworth. The man was not a schmuck. He had a business to run, you know. And you know, he, he kind of says, and he says, you can absolutely trust anything these people say, but leave me alone. <laughs> so it, you know, people were still hedging their bet, you know. Um, and I love this thing about the iconization of the book. I love the book because it was written by a hundred drunks and I'm just one drunk and at best with a guy sponsor I'm two drunks and I I like input you know a bigger a bigger picture and um, I had this friend named Jay, great guy could not get sober couldn't get sober. uh, uh, He was uh, very very wealthy Uh, one of the captains of his industry had incredible resources and couldn't get sober his company uh, sequestered him in in a uh, rehab up in Oregon and uh, he called his brother from this rehab, his brother's a sober member, and, and he said, look, I heard a tape of a guy up here named Scott Redman. If I can contact this guy, I'll never drink again. He, this guy can do it for me. I got it. I got it. This guy can do it. And his brother said, uh, you're a moron. Uh, Scott Redman's been my sponsor for 10 years. You've eaten dinner with him. Uh, you stood next to him at my wedding. Um... You, you have the mind of a chicklet. You're a complete
1: <laughs> moron. <laughs> well, you know how long I kept him sober for. Not one...